And today's sermon is the last in this series on the book of Psalms, and it is on Psalm 49, which is our second Bible reading. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain, he is like the beasts that perish." This is the path of those who have foolish confidence. Yet after them, people approve of their boasts, Selah. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol, with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me, Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please do keep that page open because we will be referring to that psalm during the sermon. Let's bow our heads now and pray for God to do his life-transforming work through his word. In Job chapter 23, Job says, I have treasured the words of God's mouth more than my daily bread. Father, please give us the same spiritual hunger that Job had. And just as he treasured your word, would we ourselves treasure it this morning? For Jesus' sake, amen. Margin Call is a 2011 movie set in the world of high finance 
in New York City. It was described in the New Yorker as easily the best Wall Street movie ever made. Most of the characters in the movie are employed at an unnamed investment bank, and it's fair to say that these characters are fixated on money. At one point, two junior employees approach the head of their department and ask him, did you really make two and a half million last year? He says, yeah, sure. And then they ask him, how did you spend it all? He says, it goes quite quickly. You know, you learn to spend what's in your pocket. They say, two and a half million goes quickly. And then he explains exactly what he did with it. He says, all right, let's see. So the tax man takes half up front, so you're left with one and a quarter. My mortgage takes another 300 grand. I send 150 home for my parents, you know, keep them going. Spent 150 on a car, about 75 on restaurants, probably 50 on clothes. I put 400 away for a rainy day. Well, I wonder how you instinctively react to that example of someone having so much money at his disposal. It would be understandable if you felt a momentary pang of envy, especially if paying the rent each month is a struggle for you. But what about fear? Does the great wealth of rich people ever make you afraid? The expectation of Psalm 49 is that ordinary people will sometimes fear the wealthy, will be tempted to fear those who, in the words of verse 6, trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Fear of the wealthy is the theme of the psalm. It's first mentioned in verses 5 and 6, and it's still in focus in verse 16. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich. You might be thinking that fear isn't something you yourself ever feel towards wealthy people. But money is a form of power. It empowers you to buy goods and services and influence other people's lives. And that power can make rich people frightening. Imagine you have to fight a court case against a very wealthy opponent who can afford to pay a team of lawyers to frustrate your case until you've run out of funds. That frightening situation would be something like the times of trouble described in verse 5 when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me. Or imagine being one of the workers at the Stelladoro cookie factory in the Bronx when it was bought by Brinwood Partners, a private equity firm currently managing assets worth $2 billion. The workers at that factory in the Bronx were at the mercy of their new wealthy owners. To begin with, the new owners made sharp cuts to the workers' wages and benefits. Then three years later, Brinwood sold the company to a firm in Ohio that had no use for the factory in the Bronx and shut it down with a few weeks' notice, leaving all its workers unemployed. In situations like that, it would be natural to fear the wealthy. 
But even if we don't face any particular threat from wealthy people, we've probably all had the experience of feeling somewhat intimidated in their presence. If you've ever been involved with a fundraising banquet in New York, you'll have rubbed shoulders with some very well-off, very well-dressed people. It can be intimidating to meet them. We can feel as if we're on a lower level to them, just a, a lower platform of humanity. That nervous, intimidated feeling is a kind of fear. A similar fear caused by rich people is the fear that our lives will seem like failures compared with theirs. A giant bank account, it looks like a reward for success, a reward for living a successful life. In comparison, a bank account that barely breaks even can feel like a sign around your neck saying, loser. Still another fear that wealthy people can stir up in our hearts is the fear of missing out. We have an uncomfortable, fearful sense of good things passing us by out of our reach, owning a Manhattan apartment, enjoying fashionable restaurants and glamorous vacations, or buying high-end possessions. Psalm 49 recognizes that these fears are part of universal human experience. The psalm consciously addresses all humanity. Verse 1 says, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. And the psalm goes on to confront the fears we've been thinking about, offering us the wisdom and understanding we need to overcome these fears. The psalm singer puts forward two reasons why wealthy people shouldn't make us feel afraid. We'll think about each of these two reasons in turn and consider the implications for our own lives. The first reason is that all people face an unavoidable destination. All people face an unavoidable destination. Money so often seems to get wealthy people out of uncomfortable situations that the rest of the world can't easily escape. David Geffen is a music and film industry billionaire. In late March 2020, he was isolating, like everyone else, in those early weeks of the pandemic. Well, perhaps he wasn't isolating quite like everyone else. He posted a picture on Instagram of his 454-foot yacht anchored in the Caribbean with a sunset in the background. In the world of super yachts, a 454-foot yacht is classified as a giga yacht. There are only a 100 private yachts that big in the whole world. Geffen's picture had this caption, isolated in the Grenadines, avoiding the virus, I'm hoping everybody is staying safe. Unsurprisingly, his post was not well received on social media. One person commented, it's like he wants to be first on the list for when the peasants revolt. <laughs> Another person said, you'd think someone in the music industry would be less tone deaf. Geffen's Instagram post reinforced people's suspicion that money can solve all of life's problems. But Psalm 49 identifies one problem that money cannot solve. Please look down with me to verse 7, and I'll read from there. Truly, 
no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. It's impossible, according to those verses, to buy eternal life. No ransom fee can be given to God, we're told in verse 7, to gain control of your own life. Verse 8 underlines the point, no payment is ever enough. The ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. And so the desired outcome described in verse 9, that he should live on forever and never see the pit, is unobtainable through wealth. I can pay cash, the rich person might say to God, but God will reply, you don't have enough. My accounts have just been audited. I'm good for the money. You don't have enough. What about cash plus assets? All my assets, you don't have enough. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus makes the same point. He asks his disciples, what can a man give in exchange for his life? He leaves the question hanging because he expects the disciples to know the answer. There is nothing that can be given. No payment we can make to God to retain life forever. And since that's true, death makes everyone equal. Death has rightly been described as the great leveler. We may feel as if the rich are up here and we're down there, but death proves that's not the case. Verse 10 points out that not only must everyone perish, whether wise or foolish, but everyone dies personally penniless because we can't take any wealth with us. How much did he leave? The heirs eagerly ask the inheritance lawyer looking into their uncle's affairs, their late uncle's affairs. The lawyer dryly replies, everything. Death levels us by making us all equally penniless in the grave. In verse 11, the psalm singer makes an observation just as true today as it was when the psalm was written. Because of death, people can no longer live in lands named after them. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. King Louis XIV of France can't walk around in Louisiana, named in his honor, because he's been in his grave since 1715. Nicholas Brown Jr. can't walk around Brown University in Rhode Island, because he's been in his grave ever since 1841. Stephen A. Schwartzman can still visit the main branch of the New York Public Library on 42nd Street, named in his honor, thanks to a $100 million donation, but he can only visit it until the day he dies. When that day comes, his name will still be on the door, but he won't be able to walk through the door. Wealth can name a territory, but it can't raise a person from their grave to enjoy the territory named after them. In death, they're on the same level as those who worked 
as tenants on their estates. Death is the great leveler. Verse 12 then gives us a ruthless summary of everything said so far. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. Man in his pomp may seem intimidating, but he'll die like the animals. And we're not intimidated when we see the sun-whitened bones of a long-dead animal in the desert. Verse 12 is viewing things from the perspective of this world. And from that perspective, there's no difference in the end between the man in his pomp and the beast in the field. Death doesn't just level out human beings, verse 12 is saying. It also brings human beings down to the level of animals. Now, there's plenty still to be said about what happens after death. But from the perspective of this life, the deceased wealthy person who once seemed so powerful is no different from animal bones in the desert. People and animals face the same prospect. Death is the destination that cannot be avoided. David Geffen can sail away from COVID hotspots, but he can't sail away from the graveyard. Death is the great leveler. And that means the factory worker in the Bronx who loses her job can look at the chairman of the private equity firm responsible and she can say to herself, you and I are no different. You and I are both food for worms. Death is the great leveler. and Therefore, there's no need to fear the rich. Whether rich or poor, we all face the same future, the same overwhelming problem that can't be solved by banknotes or plastic cards or gold. Death levels us all. It's time for us to hear the psalm's second reason why we need not fear the wealthy. The first was that all people face an unavoidable destination. The second is that God's people have an undeserved destiny. God's people have an undeserved destiny. Through God's mercy, his people, whether they're poor or rich, have the undeserved destiny of eternal life with him. And that means our ultimate destiny is unimaginably more secure and more splendid than the ultimate destiny of the unbelieving rich. It's worth emphasizing at this point that Psalm 49 doesn't condemn everyone who's wealthy. The psalm's argument is that we don't need to fear the wealthy. And one reason why God's people don't need to fear them is because of our own undeserved destiny. Many wealthy people share that same undeserved destiny because they're trusting in the God of the Bible. They've taken hold of the salvation he offers lovingly. But verse 13 speaks of those who have foolish confidence. That is what stops a person receiving God's rescue. The foolish confidence that says, even as death approaches, I don't want God getting involved with my life. I'm fine by myself. 
And isn't it so often true that great wealth breeds that kind of foolish, misplaced confidence? Jesus famously warned the rich that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That wasn't his final word on the subject. A couple of verses later in Mark chapter 10, he says, all things are possible with God. But the warning stands. There's something about wealth that makes it hard for rich people to receive God's salvation. It's very comforting and and pleasing to use your wallet to get whatever is best in your eyes. But when we trust in God for salvation, that means putting our life, including all of our possessions, under his authority. Trusting in God doesn't necessarily mean selling up and giving all the proceeds to a Christian charity. Doing that would actually probably be unwise. But trusting in God does mean making money decisions driven by the desire to please God in accordance with his teaching revealed in his word. For many rich people, that is a leap of faith, a leap of trust they're unwilling to take. They prefer to take those money decisions all by themselves, without reference to God. So they hold on to the foolish confidence spoken of in verse 13. Now, just as salvation isn't limited to the poor, in the same way foolish confidence isn't limited to the rich. Poor people can have that. And after they die, they will experience the same destiny. Verse 14 pictures death as a shepherd looking after a flock made up of all those who died in foolish confidence, whether rich or poor. Shepherds control their sheep. It's a picture of the powerlessness and helplessness of the dead. And death is not a shepherd who leads his flock to green pastures where they can eat. It's the opposite. Death oversees the consuming of his flock by the earth in which they lie. As it says in the last line of verse 14, their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. Sheol is the Old Testament name for the place of the dead, the grave. The first hint in the whole psalm of a different destiny for God's people is found in the previous line of verse 14. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning. In the book of Psalms, the morning is sometimes a poetic way of speaking about the life to come. The morning corresponds to the new heavens and the new earth described in the final chapters of the Bible. The universe restored to the way God wants it to be. When that time comes, the upright, those made righteous by the grace of God, will rule over those who died in foolish confidence. The Bible often speaks of God's people taking part somehow in the final judgment, sharing in the judging. And that's probably what's in view in that line in verse 14. The upright shall rule over them in the morning. What a turning of the tables 
that will seem in many cases as those who were rich but had foolish confidence, did not trust in God for salvation, are ruled over by the poor who did trust in God for their salvation. But by now, we're supposed to be asking the question, how can this be, the upright ruling over them in the morning? Didn't verse 7 tell us, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life? How, how then can it be that the upright are ruling over those who died with foolish confidence in that future morning? In verse 15, the psalm singer answers the question, For God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. What man cannot do, God will do. God will pay the ransom fee needed to release his people from the power of the grave. It's sometimes said that the Old Testament doesn't talk about life after death. It's said that the Old Testament doesn't hold out the hope of life after death. I wish the people who say that would read Psalm 49 verse 15. The psalm singer is confident that what man cannot do, God will do. God will free his people from death's grip and receive them into his presence. But in order to do that, God had to come down into the world in the person of his son. To pay that ransom fee, God had to take on human flesh so that he could be punished in our place. Obtaining our freedom. It happened when Jesus died on the cross. The Son of God had been richer and more powerful than anyone on earth. All those wealthy boasters described in verse 6. But he gave all of that up out of love for those who could not redeem themselves. He gave it all up out of love for you and me. As it says in a hymn, we sometimes sing here at church, Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake, becamest poor. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake, becamest man. And we can be sure that the ransom fee paid by Jesus really worked because he himself came out of the grave on the third day. Death could not hold him in its grip. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is rather like the moment when hostages see the door to freedom swing open. No human being had ever risen from the grave to live forever before Jesus, the God-man, did it in 33 AD. Jesus proves that the freedom declared in verse 15 is available. It's available for you and for me because Jesus, the first fruits, had that verse 15 experience himself. For, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. It wouldn't surprise me if there's someone perhaps here today or listening online who hasn't yet 
put his or her trust in Jesus. If that's you, please hear the message of Psalm 49. However great your wealth or your achievements, your life in this world will not end in success, it will end in the grave. And only Jesus can ransom you from the grave so that God will receive you like a father receiving his little child. Come into those divine arms through faith in Jesus. Run to those arms. When we put our trust in Jesus, we're making him the Lord of our our life, including our bank account. But he is a good Lord who guides us with his wisdom and generously meets our needs. God wants to receive you. If you haven't yet put your trust in him through Jesus, God wants to receive you like a father receiving his child. Go to his arms, even today, through faith in Jesus. But Psalm 49 has much to say to the Christian as well as to the not yet Christian. Imagine reading Psalm 49 as an enslaved person in pre-Civil War America. And imagine you're a believer, but you're the property of a wealthy slave owner. Think how meaningful Psalm 49 would be to you in that situation. Think how meaningful Psalm 49 must be to a Christian in Pakistan today, where Christians are often forced to take the most unpleasant jobs that no one else is willing to do because Christians aren't considered to be on the same level as other Pakistanis. And even here in New York, where the power differential between Christians and wealthy unbelievers is far less intense than those other examples, Psalm 49 is still meaningful. It teaches us to relate to the unbelieving world, including the wealthy unbelieving world, without fear. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich and the glory of his house increases, we're told in verse 16. In any intimidating situation, whether wealth is stirring up fear of a person or whether it's something else about that person stirring up fear, Psalm 49 teaches us, first, that all people face an unavoidable destination. Everyone faces that destination. And second, that God's people have an undeserved destiny. So we should treat non-Christians not only as our equals due to death, but also as those in need of salvation. Through Psalm 49, God wants our minds to run on different train tracks than they naturally run on when we're in the presence of the rich and powerful. Instead of the tracks of fear, God wants our minds to run on tracks that are fitting for those ransomed from the power of the grave. Generous tracks, eager for non-Christians to receive the same salvation we've taken hold of through Jesus. The logic 
of Psalm 49 is that if there's no need to be afraid of the rich, there's no need to be afraid of anyone. We have the good news of salvation from death. And with God's help, we can share that good news. When the opportunity arises, we can share it fearlessly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess to you that money and wealthy people often stir up different kinds of fear in our hearts. We thank you for the realism of this part of your word, Psalm 49, which reminds us so forcefully that we all share the same destination. Thank you for the reminder of the way that death levels us all, puts us on the same platform. And with that in mind, and with our salvation in mind, that ransom from the grave that we have received through Jesus, we pray, Father, that we would relate to rich people and powerful people without fear, but instead with generosity and love and openness. Strengthen us for this, we pray. Change our thinking, transform our minds. For Jesus' sake, amen.